Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, church. We Last week, we had a nearly empty soundstage area, and this week, well, look at you. It's good to see you. It is. We might have to call the restaurant and say, brace yourself. It is so good to be with you. I want to kind of cut to the end in a little bit here. Not of the sermon. Don't get your hopes up. That's not the way this works. Back when I used to do counseling, sometimes I would look at people and say, now, We're supposed to take about two years to get to this next point, but we're going to talk about it tonight. And that helped them at least understand where we were going. And when we talk about our Bibles, and we look at our Bibles with a critical eye, that very often frightens people. And they wonder, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Well, there are several reasons why we need to do this. It's hard work. It's emotional work. But it's necessary. And we're going to do some lists here it, it, this one will be an interesting lesson, but uh, I can't wait for the next three or four because I've written those and they're better. Anyway, I do also want to tell you, if you are on the route this week, I'd love to see you. I'm going off on the welcome home tour to see several people on Monday. I will be in North Little Rock. By the way, you can write in info at rsafeharbor.com and we will get the information to you. I know a lot of folk in Little Rock in the area. Some are driving an hour and a half to be there tomorrow night. Uh, It's going to be at my hotel so we can fill it up. All right. Then on Tuesday, I will be in southwest Arkansas, Nashville, Arkansas. uh, And we'll be meeting at a church called Christ Church. And they meet in a private home. So I'm not inviting people to the private home. I believe we have 20, 25 people at least that are planning to be at that one. Um, and then Wednesday night, uh, I will be speaking at the Walnut Street Church of Christ in Texarkana, Texas. It is uh, one of my favorite places, and we talked and talked and talked on the phone this week, and they said, you're in the area, we'd like for you to, to speak on Wednesday night, and here's what we'd like you to talk about. And I said, great. And so if you are within, you know, you're Texans, you drive two hours for coffee, um, Texarkana at Walnut Street Church of Christ. It starts at 6 o'clock. I believe all of these will start at 6. But if I'm wrong, it'll be close. Then, the next night, Houston. Well, Kingwood. So close to Houston. And again, it is a group that meets in a private home. I I promise you Texas people, because we get requests from Texas, Beaumont, uh, Orange, um, Silsby, I think it's called, and then over into uh, Louisiana, Lake Charles, and up through there. Uh, we will make it other trips, and we will get to you. Then after Thursday, I head over to South Central Louisiana. That's Jennings, Louisiana. And we've already heard that people are driving a couple of hours to get there. That'll be a shorter meeting because I have to start driving home Friday night to get back here for an appointment uh, on Saturday afternoon. So that's a big loop right there. And during the days, I'll be visiting with some ministers and with some uh, twos and threes that meet in different places. So it's going to be a packed week. 
Uh, I should have probably recorded the next Sunday sermon, but it's going to be semi-life. That's all I can promise you at this stage. All right? So the Welcome Home Tour is off. If you would like for me to come to your area, we cannot come if we don't know where you are. Uh, and so please send to info at rsafeharbor.com uh, and just give us your address and your contact details. We never share that without your permission. We just don't. So it's safe. Fair enough? Here we go. When atheists say that there is no God, they're arguing against the God of the Bible. Now, not the good God of the Bible. And by the way, there's only one God. We believe that. But they look in here and they see genocide, slavery, war stories, mistreatment of women, uh, even to, up to the murder of women. And they do not see how anybody could worship a God like this. And whenever we say, well, you know, the Bible is 100% the word of God and, in, and it was spoken by God, then that gives God's approval and premature to all the awful things. And so they cannot have that. They just won't. By the way, if you think that this is not a big problem, atheism is growing faster than any church movement has ever grown in every country you want to think about. Even, I, we just got the big statistics, and I may do next week's newsletter a very condensed version of it. But for example, in Breton, uh, far more people do not believe in God than believe in God. And yet, more people believe in Breton than in France and in Germany and Austria. Well, what about here? Atheists have now grown larger than most American denominations. And by the next 10 years, they're expected to have more atheists than Baptists, and not much longer after that, more atheists than Catholics. We had better look at our message and see what we're doing and change some things. We cannot change some things. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We cannot change that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived for us, taught us, died for us, was resurrected and ascended to heaven and now intercedes for us. That is what Paul says is the gospel. He says that's what he preaches. Peter writes, some people already at that time were using the scriptures in ways they weren't supposed to use them. And Paul and Peter both say to handle them correctly, rightly divide. So we have to talk about that. When we spend so much time arguing, uh, for example, whenever I would say, well, this passage says, we're going to look at some of them today. Go into that town, kill all the men, women, infants, and babies. How does that square with a loving Jesus? I get many answers. Some say, well, God's smarter than us. We can't question God. And I'm going, but we're made in his image, <laughs> and we're supposed to question. Because he says, come, let us reason together. He gave us that right. So how about, and then it'll, it'll devolve into, well, they must have had it coming. Babies? Well, God knows what they'd be like when they grew up. Do you see what this is? It's called casuistic ratiocination. It means you are facing something impossible. You must now find a, a way to make it possible, even if it damages the character and image of God. If you have a doctrine that you hold to, to honor God, but instead it disparages the character of God. Um, I, I believe you've gone too far. And I think Peter was talking about that. 
in the passage just read. We don't need to be arguing about the bits and pieces, contradictions, moral quandaries and all, because we end up diluting the gospel. We end up having to make the Messiah fit the story instead of Jesus changing the stories and redeeming the stories. I've had people say, well, the reason women can't do these things is because God put them under a curse in the garden. Yeah, that's, that's what we hear. But we also have Jesus who lifted the curse. Now we go back and read again through Jesus' eyes. We can lose sight of Jesus and we can lose our Christian character when we try to defend the Bible or anything, actually. There are, uh, we mentioned last Sunday at Ashbury, there was um, an outbreak that is still going on of student-led, you know, there are some superstars of different churches that have shown up, but this is all student-led, where worship is still going on today, and a week and a half later, but it's also broken out at Samford down in Birmingham, and several other places, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Baptist churches, and Baptist colleges, rather, and yet, on Twitter, the amount of Christians who say, well, I don't hear the gospel here, where's the preaching, and I'm thinking, well, why do we rush to condemn? Why do we rush to condemn? What is it in us that makes us think we must find what's wrong? Last, yesterday, we, a few of us got to go down to eastern Tennessee to see a wedding of a young man that we've long loved. And during, before the wedding, they were playing a piano piece and something just kind of hit me saying, isn't it wonderful? that you don't have to disapprove anymore. Now, I, whether that's God speaking to me or whether that's bubbling up of neural particles, I'm not, I don't even care. But the, the piano was playing a hymn and many years of my life I'd be going, oh, not supposed to do that. Now, for the 80-something percent of you that are going, what? I don't want to go into it. All right, we were just told to disapprove of that. And then, you know, I thought, well, look around, Patrick, and find what you can disapprove of. And I do that as an exercise. And what you would have. Oh, that hair is too long on that guy. And that woman's not wearing the appropriate attire, you know. And that's over here. And now the preacher was, you can always, it's the easiest thing in the world to go find something of which to disprove. But think of how easy and wonderful it is that when the burden is lifted and you don't have to disapprove anymore. I've had people say, have you heard of so-and-so? And I'll go, yeah. Well, you do you like him? Absolutely. So you agree with what he teaches? Sometimes. And they'll say, well, what do you disagree with? Not going to tell you. Because we're saved. And I don't feel the need to lay out what I consider faults and issues in somebody else. Uh, by the way, I love it when you return that favor because there are faults and issues here. We don't want to lose sight of Jesus and lose our Christian character by defending our little square inches of territory. So let me ask a question. Can the Bible ever be wrong? Can it contradict itself? Can it have errors in it? If you were raised in conservative evangelical churches, some of which, ours was so conservative, we refused to be called evangelical. You can always take it one more level. Um, you might have a reflexive shock response to can the Bible ever be wrong, but have you ever really, really read the Bible? Because the Bible never says what statements of faith and corporations and theological schools say. When it will go on this big, long, deep paragraph of how perfect and wonderful the Bible is. And finally, halfway down the page, you get a mention of Jesus. The Bible never says that about itself. 
It says, here's our story. Even starts in the beginning. It's very similar to in a galaxy far, far away. I love that. I love the story has power. Well, for example, math guy. Thank you. He said, you know, he might lose some of the people uh, because he's doing math. And I said, well, that doesn't add up. Do you figure? Anyway, we, we had a good time. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The sea of brass, the thing that was in front of the originally tabernacle, then the temple, for the priest to use as a bathing thing to cleanse himself before they served, was 30 cubits. Um, it was 10 by 30 and round. If you know your high school geometry, you know that can't work that way. Circumference of a circle, you have to multiply the diameter. So it really would have to be 31.4 cubits, not 30. You disappointed? Has your faith hit the rocks? Has an iceberg ripped out the bottom of your ship of faith? It shouldn't. You know why? Because the people writing about this were not interested in precision. That's a modern idea. They weren't interested in, here's the real math. And they had no word for point four. They had no word for millions. I know in some of your versions, it'll say millions. In the manuscripts, it'll say thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands. That's, that's as high as they could go. And they weren't precise there. Have you noticed the precision of some of the stories? When I was a boy, I was wondering, why do we baptize people in groups of 3,000? Because it always seemed to be a round number. Until I got up older and found out they weren't precise with numbers because that's not who they were. And it made me feel a lot better about telling how many people came to my church. Well, in the biblical sense, you know, it's a, we don't even have a number for it. But we can get more serious. In 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1, the Bible says that God was upset at Israel and their, their wrongdoing. So he incited David to number Israel, which was a sin. And then he punished Israel for doing what he incited them to do. In 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, God didn't do that. Satan did. We can do this all day. There, the stories, it is, well, in Samuel, this is what they thought, is that nothing happened unless God caused it. In Chronicles, they understood that we were not alone in the universe and some of the things out there don't like us. They had learned that during their period of captivity in Babylon. And now they said it wasn't God. So what should I do with this? Does this upset me? Can we hold this for a minute? I want to ask a question. Why doesn't it upset the Jews? They know these books more than anybody. And I've yet to find a rabbi that I say this, then this will go more than shrug and say, we were telling our story as we knew our story, as God revealed to us. And I'm going, well, that's cool. <laughs> that means we don't have to do all the, and by the way, I've heard the debates over that passage. In Genesis 1, God plant, uh, creates plants before he creates the sun. Is that a problem? Nope. Not unless you're trying to say that God told Moses how he scientifically did things. Moses couldn't have got it. He was head of sheep, Sinai division. That's it. He wouldn't have understood a Venn diagram. Not because he was stupid. Hey, the people back then built stuff and they did stuff like, you probably saw the article a few months ago. 
that we've, we just now figured out why Roman concrete lasts so long. They found a way to make itself heal. They were dumb. They had room in their lives for mystery and contradiction. I wish we understood that more. When I read books, I like to read thrillers and mysteries, but honestly, I get halfway through a lot of them and I'm already going, okay. Because everybody's a cartoon. Everybody is, you know, they are stand-ins for different, you know, there's the bad guy and here are the bad guys. You can watch a movie. You can watch a, you know, one of the Sylvester Stallone movies where he went from first blood to let's just keep killing him. And nameless, faceless people, shoot, 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 chop, chop, chop. And we're all going, he wins without thinking, well, these people had families. These people had dreams. Life is full of contradictions and the good guy is also bad and the bad guy has some good things. And I love that the Bible lays it out. The price for the threshing floor changes from Samuel to Chronicles. I think that's a pretty simple one, actually. I think that the rate of exchange had changed and the money system had changed. So it's not a problem for me. You know who it is a problem for? Those who say that God dictated every single word. Because he wouldn't have had to change something. He, again, more, we can bring up more later. But I want to run you past some things. Um, I've had people say, well, you, only the original manuscripts are without error. And we don't have those. Okay. Huge assumption. There's a perfection thing out there which we do not have. Well, how do you prove that? How do you disprove that? By the way, even if we had the original, I don't really see how this matters. Some of the errors are due to copyist errors. I love those. With textual criticism, you can catch them. Like every so often, Jesus will be saying something or he'll talk about he was resurrected and he'll go, behold, that's a giveaway. They didn't do a lot of beholding when they were writing the scriptures. But copyists sometimes would be overwhelmed by the story. God bless them. And I mean that, not in a southern way. I really mean bless them. Because they were so overwhelmed by what they were writing, they would put in the margins, behold. And over the decades and centuries, that got in. I'm cool with that. Why would you not be cool with a good behold every now and then? This is not just an ancient problem. There was the Wicked Bible. Have you ever heard of the Wicked Bible of 1631? Printers had to pay a lot of money to have the right to print the Bible. And you had to do it under license of the king. So this person, by the way, ended up in jail and bankrupt. They printed their Bible. But they left out a three-letter word by accident, complete accident, in the wrong place. And so in the Ten Commandments, there's one that says, thou shalt commit adultery. Which I would assume was a very popular version, but inaccurate. And again, sometimes copiers make mistakes. And some claims of inerrancy aren't what you think it is. Here's the big thing today. When people say inerrant, they mean different things. Millard Erickson, which is one of the more conservative interpreters of scripture says that scripture is quote when correctly interpreted in the light of the level to which culture and the means of communication had developed at the time it was written and in view of the purposes for which it was given is truthful in all that it affirms 
He calls himself an inerrantist. Some of us would look at that and say, I'm not sure you are. Because we are not aware the word inerrant is a very elastic term. We're going to look at that. But before we do, how about another one? Think of Copernicus and the idea, stunning, that the earth revolved around the sun. Well, the Bible did not contradict that. But people read the Bible in such a way as to contradict that. And therefore they said, you are going against the plainly written word of God that talks about four corners of the earth, that talks about when the sun rises and sets. People, we still do. When I, yesterday as we're driving back, I I directed Cammie to the beautiful line of orange in the sky. Tennessee, and by the way, I've lived a lot of places. the, The different skies are amazing. Tennessee has some real different colors in the sky. There's this cotton candy pink thing going on that's really cool. And then there's the orange that's only seen in UT Knoxville and on the sunsets. And I, other than that, it is not seen on earth. And by the way, I know Michigan. He made the sky Michigan blue. We've heard all of it, all right? But it's really pretty. And I said, look at the sunset. My wife didn't go, you ignorant fool. Copernicus proved that the sun's not setting. We're turning and going around. We still use those terms, but when you read the Bible as if it's a scientific, 100% precise, dogmatic, what happens? It puts you on the wrong side of science, and Galileo would later get in big trouble over it. It's important to understand that there are shades of meanings, and I hate to do this. I really do hate to do this. But I have not been a fan of presidents for a very long time. I, you know, you, you be a fan all you want to be, True. Um, no politics hit this stage. But when Bill Clinton said it all depends on what the meaning of is, is, people went, oh, he's trying to dodge. But it really does. In legal terms, in moral philosophy, you have to define what you mean by is. And, and by the way, if you want to see people define every term, talk to a lawyer. We started with Ten Commandments. Now this room could not, full be, could not hold the law books of the state of Tennessee because you have to define every term. And by the way, that's a pretty good idea. You know, engineer, I'd like to have that term defined before they build the bridge. Because if it's guy who visited Lowe's, that's not enough. <laughs> right? So precision. We have precision Inerrancy is held in four different ways. And by the way, the notes are in the the worship um, description. Just go down and click. It's a PDF. Kirsten does a fantastic job of getting it there. Uh, We have um, Jaime uh, who translates into Spanish, and so they're available to you as well. Absolute inerrantist. Say the Bible is completely true in everything that it says, including historical and scientific matters. They often have a, quote, God dictated every word view of scripture. The human element to them is is a complete non-issue. Full inerrantist say the Bible is completely true even in matters of science and history. But they say that the matters of science and history are true as they appeared to the observer not as they would appear to a modern scientist or historian. And you might go, well, what does that mean? Bunnies, I'll explain. 
in Leviticus where they're told you cannot eat any food unless it chews the cud and has a divided hoof. And then it goes on to explain that there are no exceptions by setting up exceptions and wiping them down all the way through. And then it brings up the, bu- the bunny, the coney in some of your old translations. It says it doesn't have a divided, even though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. Bunnies don't chew the cud. So is the Bible wrong? A fool and errantist would say no, because it looks like they do. And that helped the people identify what they could eat and not eat. It wasn't a, you know, bring the team up, grab the table, because we've got to do an autopsy to see what's going on with the mouth action before we can eat the thing. It was made to be useful. The Bible was made to be useful to the people it was given to. And still useful to us. But we got to remember, it was written to them. And now we get to read it and apply it in our lives. But God's not dropping any big books from heaven right now. Well, then there are limited inheritance, and they believe that the Bible is free from error, but only in matters directly related to faith and salvation, and not science or history, because that's not the point of the book. And then you have the people who, they don't have a special adjective. Um, They call themselves people who believe that it is inerrant, in purpose. They say the Bible's purpose is to bring people into a relationship with Christ, not to communicate all truth about every subject. So, how would that vary? Okay. Let's do it. Let's do a let's do a little exercise. Absolute inerrantists believe that the first chapter of Genesis says that God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence in six literal full days, complete everything everything in those six 24-hour days. Full inheritors say that God created the universe in six days. But the periods may not mean 24-hour literal days, but eons, processes, distinct errors. Limited inheritors, they believe the question of the length of the days of how God created everything is irrelevant. They, the important fact is God created everything, whether that was in six days, six ages, or 60 billion years, doesn't matter the point is that God created all things. And then the purpose inheritance, they don't call themselves that, but I just hate always having to say the phrase, would say that the important truth of Genesis 1 is that there is a God who speaks, who can be known, and who wishes a relationship with us by sharing information with us. By the way, every Jewish rabbi I've ever talked to, that's it. In fact, they will tell you that Adam and Eve were the first Jews, not the first hominids but it's a poem about God choosing the first Jews and the garden was a a forerunner of the tabernacle and they've got the whole thing down so I look at them and I say but you do believe God spoke and the universe began and they say oh absolutely and I go okay we can work with that we're good the mechanics by the way you know how arrogant would it be for me to think you know we here in 2023 know how it all happened By the way, good luck getting that PhD in physics with that attitude. We're still figuring it out. But there are more serious issues. Joshua 10, 13. They fought a battle, and God stopped the sun. You know that one? That would have been... Now, first of all, could God do that? Yes. I just don't think it's necessary. I believe that if you look at the literature of the age, it just means 
that it seemed that God held the day until they could fight and win the battle. And we make it all, all right, somehow he threw the brakes on the cosmos. I'm not, and, and we didn't go flying off because he, he killed that. <laughs> he, that's not necessary. Limited and purpose inheritance have, have no problem with this passage. They just say it's a story to increase our faith. Just another say, a way of saying God was with them. Absolute inheritance would say that the sun stopped moving and by extension all other things. And limited inheritance would say, well, it seemed the sun slowed its progress. Why can't we all fellowship each other? Instead of yelling, you heretic. I think there's room for people to think. I, um, I heard a good preacher. He really preached a good sermon. This is years and years ago at another church long far away. And I, um, I asked him to come to a meeting for our church. And he was a good preacher. But he did something in our meeting for four days, whatever it was, that he didn't do in a sermon I heard. He had a catchphrase every so often. He said, now don't think. You don't need to be thinking. You just need to hear and obey. And I'm, I'm going... And I had people turn to me because it was a university town. They couldn't help but think. It's kind of like one of those signs that says, don't even think of parking here. Oh, great. I just thought of parking there. <laughs> I wasn't going to park. I wasn't, I wasn't going to think about it. But now I'm thinking. Or how about worse? Ezra 10, verses 2 through 11, says that God stands absolutely opposed to any marriage with a foreigner and that if you have married them and even if you have children you must send them out into the desert God says so and yet Moses took an Ethiopian wife and when there was some muttering about it God punished the mutterers and then Rahab was brought into Israel and married into it Ruth was a Moabite in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 14 they are required, or at least given the option, to marry foreigners. And in number 31, they were required to marry foreigners. I would sometimes just like to sit with Ezra. And I, sit, and I think, I, I know your heart. I know that you meant well. But you don't break up families. Have you talked to Hosea? Have you talked to Amos? Have you talked to Malachi? Where Malachi says, God, I am God and I hate divorce. Why would you be causing it? I have no problem understanding that all of these views came into one book because I'm reading it in context. Ezra was facing a particular situation. Do I think God said break up the families and shove your children in the desert? No, but I truly believe Ezra thought that's what was needed. And so I don't blame Ezra, even though I abhor what happened. He had a limited view as well. So do I. I'm not going to be judged, by the way, on how my views are precisely perfect. I'm going to be judged on knowing Christ, and he's going to save me through grace like he's going to save you. Well, Deuteronomy 17 gives very detailed <laughs> rules about the monarchy 200 years before they had one. The reason is Deuteronomy was written, by and large, later. We know that now. If you don't know that, you need to, you need to look into some things. Like Philip Jenkins' book, um, what do we call that? I'm, I'm going to have to get the title and we'll put that in the notes eventually and not today. I have some travel to do. Uh, but he talks about the intertestamental period. He talks about where these different manuscripts came from and we can trace them. 
And the Deuteronomist, as we call him, had to, had to bring a revival out in the time of Josiah. Well, there's more. In Exodus 9, all the animals in the field were destroyed twice. Verse 9, verse 25. Atheists see that and they go, see? And I look at him and I shrug and I say, I got it. They were merging stories. Have you ever read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? They're merging stories. I'm comfortable with that. Because I guarantee you, my dear mom's sitting out here. She's a sweetheart, 91, going on 15. Um, love having her in my life as she zooms past, sometimes even without the walker. If you talk to her, don't. If you talk to her about my childhood, you're going to get a whole different version from me. Now, it's not because one of us is lying. It's because we just experienced it in different ways. I can remember... Going back to a college that I had attended, a university, for those of you overseas, uh, if you don't know that, Americans, uh, college, college often means what you would call upper level high school uh, in other places. Went back to university, and, and my wife knew some of the things I'd gotten up to at that university, and she met my dorm mother. And my dorm mother just gushed about how wonderful and perfect Patrick was in every way, and my wife just kept looking at her like, because some of these things happened in her turf. But was she lying? No. We tell stories. We pull them together. And guess what? They brought us to Jesus. Mark chapter 1 has Jesus um, immediately departing after his baptism to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. But John chapter 1, verse 35 and forward, has Jesus immediately at his home in Bethany, then beside the sea, then at a wedding. And I get that. That's cool. 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 23 we have God commissioning a spirit to go tell lies. I don't think God did that. But the people there believed God was in charge of everything. Therefore, they had to find a way to make the story make sense to them. I get that. Yeah, by the way, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's an odd duck, I got to tell you. But Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 25 and 26, read it. Read it. Ezekiel 20, verses 25 and 26, has God saying, well, I gave you guys bad laws so that you'd fail on purpose. I'm, I'm not really sure that God would say, I'm sure God didn't say that. But by the way, the NIV cheats. It says, he gave them over to bad laws. There's no manuscript ever that has anything like that in it. And I like the NIV. But every so often, I cringe when I'm going, really? Come on, people, bring the heat. You don't need to soften us up. But evidently, they thought they did. <sighs> you ready? <clears throat> Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6, is just one example of many, where it says God required them to kill innocent people, including women and babies, for the crime of living where God wanted his people to be. I've heard people say before, they were wicked, they were wicked. Not in Deuteronomy 7, they weren't. In some of them, it'll talk about their wickedness was horrible. Even then, do you say, well, then it's okay to kill the babies? Is that, is that what you hear Jesus saying to us? Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 24 through, 20, um, 24 through 34. It has God intentionally hardening the hearts 
of the target group so that they wouldn't move and they wouldn't convert, but they would stay and be slaughtered. Does that sound like Jesus? See, this is why the atheisms are, are growing is because churches don't deal with what atheists can see when they read the book. But they don't see the Holy Spirit of God bringing us closer and closer to figuring out what God wants. I mean, how many times have you heard that all God requires of you, you know, is mercy and humility to walk humble with your God? You've, you've heard that? How do you think Malachi's or Hosea is going to get along with the writer of Leviticus? Who says, all God wants of you is, let's start talking ephods. And starts, they all know it's in there. We're struggling toward the light. I will never have a perfect vision of God, but I can see Jesus. That changes everything. By the way, Joshua 11, 18 through 20 states, it was God himself who hardened their hearts so they would be destroyed. Can you see that? The Old Testament's an argument about Christ. Jesus settles the argument. He is the express image of God. By the way, I oppose abortion. I think all of us should. I'm unapologetic there. And yet, 1 Samuel 15, and I've seen this, if you don't know this, Christians, I've seen this put up by atheists on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, Instagram. The 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 and 3 says, it's, you got to kill them all, even the babies and the pregnant women. So if God was okay with it then, why are you Christians not now? Wouldn't it be nice to know how to interpret Scripture and not wrestle with it to the point where God is no longer looked upon in awe as a God of love? He says he's a God of love. How do you square the two? I don't think you have to. I think you read the Bible through Jesus' eyes and you say, in humility, they were wrong and I may be wrong and we all need the mercy and grace of Jesus all the time. I guarantee you, my grandkids, if they ever stumble upon any of my sermons, are going to go, are you kidding? Because they're going to be closer to God than I am. It's the way it's supposed to be. Are you tired? Are you upset? Are you dizzy? I get it. I'll stop now. But I could literally, I actually did a little timing thing, and my timing's completely wrong, isn't it, Dave? Dave always goes, how many minutes do you need? And I give him a number, and we all laugh and laugh. <laughs> but I could do this for the next, keep up, keep up the same pace for the next three hours, listing the issues that we have to wrestle with if we try to claim that the Bible, like Jesus, is perfect in all of its things. Spoiler alert, the Bible Never claims that. Don't come to me. All scripture is in. We talked about that last week. Even there it doesn't say inerrant. It says it's useful. And it is. I didn't used to like reading the Old Testament. The more I get to know Jesus, I love reading it. The stories are much more powerful. They are much more personal. So I'm going to leave you with a reminder of the story of transfiguration. Because after all of these many centuries, well over a millennia, whenever the people got all excited, God put into the heavens Moses, Elijah, and there's Jesus standing in human form before them. And he stops their celebrations. 
there's the law and the prophets. And God said, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. I don't think you should disagree with that. And I want to spend the rest of my life pointing to Jesus. Frankly, I have pointed to many things in my life. And there's shame in that. Uh, I want to spend the rest of my life correcting it. Point to Jesus. Do what Jesus wants. Talk like Jesus talks. Do like Jesus does. He settles the argument, so hold on to him. Do you need help? You get help. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You have the Holy Spirit given to you as a gift when you are baptized. We do know in, in the family of Cornelius, he showed up and was giving them gift before baptism, but we don't have any promise of that, so we baptize. And if, wherever you are, if you want to be baptized, we want to help you get that way. So, by the way, we're doing our first Our Safe Harbor wedding in Mississippi in May. It's just kind of cool how people are understanding this is their group. These are their people. But where are the people? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. I've heard that said about Scripture. And while I think you could make that argument, it's never really expressed that way in Scripture instead. Scripture brings us to the body of people who want to be like Jesus because they help us be like Jesus. Had dinner with one of our members this this week, one of the things I said to Jose was um, one of the downsides of being a minister is one of the best things about being a minister. And that is you have to assume you are being watched. No matter where you are, somebody knows. And I said, you know, I really think I wouldn't behave as well unless I did this work. The church, the foundation of truth, Love you all. We'll end my bet here with a song.